Good morning. Um, if you're not familiar with me, my name is Sam Griffin. I'm a pastoral apprentice here at Evanston Bible Fellowship. So um, last week was Christmas. And I don't know about you, but for me, Christmas, along with eggnog and ice skating and excessive eating, involves one thing, Christmas movies. Now, I've seen many, too many Christmas movies in my days. And whether it's Home Alone, National Lampoons, or Christmas with the Cranks, they all seem to give the same message. Cherish your family and the time you spend together. In one Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, the message is given at the end of the movie in the form of a note from George Bailey's guardian angel. It says, Dear George, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. No man is a failure who has friends. That's great. It's heartwarming. It's a classic. But what does that mean for those of us who seem to have no friends, or at least for those who feel they have no friends? Does that make us failures? The truth is, for many people, this time of year is marred by a sense of agonizing loneliness. About 40% of people today feel a regular debilitating sense of loneliness in their daily lives, especially around the holidays. And this sense of loneliness pervades our popular art in films like Her, Paris, Texas, and Wally. It's in our music, too. We see it in lines like, the silence of a falling star lights up a purple sky, and as I wonder where you are, I'm so lonesome I could cry. Or maybe... Now I'm all alone and my joys turn to moping. Tell me, where are you now that I need you? Where are you now? Loneliness looms all around us. And for me, that's, it, it does for me too. Loneliness is a very persistent and personal struggle of mine. And I'll just give you one example. I moved to Chicago about two years ago. And I, it was after a, a painful breakup, and I was starting at seminary. And I was hoping for a, a new beginning. I was desperately hoping to find community. And what I found uh, instead was the most painful and profoundly lonely experience of my life. Stripped from friends and family, removed by hundreds of miles from all the community I knew, I struggled for a long time to find any meaningful human connection in my daily life. And on November 26, 2015, I wrote this in my journal. I said, today is Thanksgiving. While the people around me celebrate with friends and family, I have spent the entire day alone. Actually, I have not spoken to a single person in five days. What's sad is that this fairly describes not just this, this past week, but the past four months since moving here. I have never felt lonelier than at seminary, where, where people learn to parse verbs but fail to love. It seems most people don't know or even care to know my name. I want nothing more in the world right now than to know that someone acknowledges my presence and knows me by name. I just want a friend. The note goes on. I say, how come no one ever invites me to things? Why do I always eat alone in my room? 
Why does no one seem to listen when I speak? Why do I cry at night hoping my roommates won't hear? Will this ever end? God, why do I so often feel so desperately, utterly, hopelessly alone? Maybe you've felt that way. I am confident there are lonely people in this room this morning, and I'm even more confident that every person in this room will feel lonely someday. And so, why does this happen? When I'm loneliest, I feel not only separated from other people, but from God himself. I feel abandoned by God, and I guess you do too. So why does it feel that God sometimes abandons his people? If God is such a loving father, why does, why does God not deliver his children from loneliness? Why does it seem that God sometimes abandons his people? That's the question that David asks in Psalm 13. And so if you would, uh, would you turn to Psalm 13? Let's look together to David's prayer in Psalm 13. And as you're turning there, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning? Let me read Psalm 13, starting in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Thank you. You can be seated. So what we see here is David's anguished cries in the midst of his suffering. We don't really know what situation David's in, and that's probably a good thing because it means this can be the prayer of any believer who feels abandoned by God. This can be your prayer in loneliness. Look at verses 1 and 2. David gives four questions. Four times David cries out to God, how long? And every time in the Bible when it repeats itself, it's, it's as though the volume is being turned up. David is, is crying out to God, how long will this last? What does David feel in these verses? I think David feels three things. First, David feels separation. Separation. David feels separation from God. Look at verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Now, I don't, I don't think David literally thinks that God has forgotten him in the same way that I sometimes forget to call my mom on her birthday. No, in the Old Testament, to forget, for God to forget something is for God to withhold his help from that person. And so David is looking at his situation, and he's saying, 
God, when will you do something? When will you save me? In that same verse, how long will you hide your face from me? In David's mind, God has gone from simply forgetting him to actively hiding from him. It's as though David is accusing God, first accuses God of the passive sin of forgetting his people and his promises. And then David accuses God of an active sin, of intentionally and openly ignoring and avoiding his people. It's like when you send a text to someone and you see the read receipt, but they're not responding, and so you feel like they're ignoring you. Anyone been there? Just me? Okay. Um, God hears David's prayer. David knows, it's not like God's phone is turned off. Like, David knows that God has heard his message, and yet God's silence makes that all the more painful. David feels separation. Second, David feels desperation. Desperation. David feels desperation in his circumstances. Look at verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? The basic idea, idea here is that David has tried and failed to resolve within himself the, the difficulties, the situation he faces. He's overwhelmed, and he doesn't know what to do. He has sorrow in his heart all the day. There is not a single moment when there is not pain in David's heart. Have you ever been there? His sadness immobilizes him, and everything he tries results in more sorrow. Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, once described his company like this. He said, fundamentally, we're about eliminating loneliness and boredom. That's what entertainment does. But does it really? Can Netflix cure your loneliness? From personal experience, after binging on everything from Stranger Things to the Great British Baking Show, I can tell you, Netflix will never cure your loneliness. In fact, we could spend all day talking about things that will never cure your loneliness. Marriage won't. Sex won't. Food won't. Work won't. Travel won't. Money won't. And we know this. David knew this. David knows the only answer to his problem is God himself. And yet, God remains silent. David feels desperation. Third, David feels humiliation. David, humiliation. David feels humiliation before his enemies. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, we don't really know who David's talking about, but regardless, David feels he's in a hopeless, helpless, and humiliating situation. David is um, on the verge of death, and God is nowhere to be found. Have you ever felt this way? Maybe you feel this way. Maybe you felt this way this week. Maybe you say, how long, O oh Lord, will I come home to the crushing loneliness of an empty apartment? How long, O oh Lord, will I feel the soul-shattering scars of loneliness? How long, O oh Lord, Will my friends leave us home to deal with dirty diapers and spit up on our own? How long, 
O Lord, will you show yourself to me as cruel, cold, and uncaring? David demands more of God. That God live up to his name. That God live, that God prove himself as he has described himself. So look at verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes. The word used for consider is often translated as uh, see or look. And so it's, I get the impression of a small child uh, get, trying to get the attention of his parent. You've probably been here. You think, Dad, 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 look at me. Dad, look at me. It's like David's crying to God. Look at me. See me. Notice me. And God's nowhere to be found. David, David then says, light up my eyes. Basically, that means restore me. Restore me to health. Revive me. Save me from death. In your Bibles, I'm guessing that the name Lord, every letter is capitalized. And that means it's referring to the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And that's an important name. If you know your Bibles in Exodus 3, God first reveals his name to Moses. And then later in Exodus 34, God again makes himself known. He says, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's what this name refers to. That's what the name of God means, that God is those things and he will do those things and he will be those things and do those things forever. So David is saying, God, live up to your name. Prove that you are who you say you are. David gives two reasons for God to act. First, David will die if God does nothing. David will die if God does nothing. Verse 3, lest I sleep the sleep of death. God has two options. He can, either, he can either let David die or he can come to his rescue. David cannot save himself, and so that's the only way this is going to play out. Second reason, God's enemies will sing if David dies. God's enemies will sing if David dies. David is the king, and therefore he's representative of the people of God. So if David dies, it will look like God was too weak to save him. Basically, God's reputation is on the line here. If David dies, his enemies will say that they'll not only sing over his death, but they will say that they triumphed over his God. God's glory is at stake, and yet... God still doesn't answer. God is totally silent to David's prayer. And as if that's not bad enough, it seems God has a long track record of being silent to the suffering of his people, of abandoning his people. If we so much as casually flip through Scripture, we see over and over again that God, it appears God abandons his people. Where was God when David's daughter Tamar was raped and disgraced by Amnon? 
Where was God when his own people were enslaved in Egypt by a ruthless king? Where was God when the Hebrew sons, literally tens of thousands of children, were stripped from their screaming mother's arms and thrown into the Nile? Where was God when Joseph's jealous brothers sold him into slavery? And when Joseph, because of his integrity, was thrown into prison? Where was God when, when Abel, because of his righteousness, was murdered by his brother Cain? And let's not forget, where was God in Eden when the serpent approached Eve with lies and God did nothing? Oh, and let's not forget, where was God when he abandoned his son? Jesus entered into our world of social dysfunction and awkwardness and and isolation. Jesus never had someone who knew what he felt like. He never had someone to comfort him. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was lonelier than us all. He was called a bastard and the name stuck. He was a refugee displaced from his home and culture. He was destitute, homeless, never having money or a place to lay his head. He was ridiculed and exploited and misunderstood. And as if that's not bad enough, Jesus became sin for us on the cross and was forsaken by his Father. He cries out to his Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, God forgets his Son. God hides his face. God leaves Jesus in his suffering. God abandons Jesus into the hands of his enemies, and his enemies rejoice. God abandons his child. God abandons his boy. So why does this happen? How can God do these things and still be good? It is because God delivers his people through the sufferings of his son. God delivers his people through the sufferings of his son. God abandons his son on the cross. It's true. But as Peter preaches on Pentecost, God does not abandon his son to the grave or let him see corruption. God restores Jesus to life on the third day and gives him light to his eyes in the resurrection of the body. Yes, God sometimes seems to abandon his children, but despite God's seeming absence, God's love will never fail, and he will always deliver his people. Let me say it again. Despite God's seeming absence, God's love will never fail, and he will always deliver his people. Look at verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. Nothing really has changed in David's circumstances. He's still in this same desperate situation, and yet David suddenly rejoices in God. Why? David grounds his confidence in the future. 
in the steadfast love of God. This love is an unfailing love. And it is an enduring allegiance to the covenant God made with his people. God will not go back on the promises he made. God will prove himself enduringly faithful through every circumstance. And for this reason, David sings, my heart will rejoice in your salvation. So this verb is the same word that's used in verse 4 to describe David's enemies. And here, it's the opposite. So because even though his enemies might have the upper hand, because David trusts in the love of God, David will be vindicated. David will rejoice. And verse 6 I will sing to the Lord. There's that name again. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So David says he will sing to God. Why? Because God has dealt bountifully with him. David is looking ahead to the future, to the guaranteed deliverance that God will give, and he anticipates that deliverance by singing in the present. John Calvin said it in this way. David is preparing himself to celebrate in song the grace of God even before he perceives the end of his trouble. So I was in Haiti uh, two years ago, and I went to a small rural church, and the service started, and the band, the, the worship team, consisted of a guitarist and a drummer. And about a few minutes into the second song, a man I had not seen walks up onto stage, and he's carrying a bass guitar. He plugs it into the amp, And then, as we are still singing, get that? As we are still singing, he begins to tune his bass. Does that make sense? The results were were not pretty. Um, It was bad. The The song just sounded incoherent. What's the moral? The moral of the story is he should have tuned his bass before the music began, not during, right? That's what David's doing here. He's singing, he's tuning his voice and heart now to sing of God's grace in the future. And guess what? We can do that too. How do we do that? How can we tune our hearts in the midst of loneliness? We can set our minds on Jesus Christ, and we can do that by rehearsing gospel truths to ourselves every day. We can set our minds on Jesus by rehearsing gospel truths to ourselves every day. So we're going to do that now. First gospel truth. God calls us into a family. God calls all of us into a family. In Mark 3, Jesus is teaching and his mother and brothers come to him and the crowd says, look, your mother and brothers, they're here. And Jesus, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He looks around at his disciples and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, He is my brother and sister and mother. Later in Mark 10, Peter says to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. I think Peter was still thinking of discipleship in terms of what he gave up rather than what he gained. But Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. 
what I think Jesus is saying is that you will have close relationships if you follow Jesus. They might look different from what you expected, but we are not adopt we are not orphans. We are adoptees. Jesus has given us an entirely new set of parents, siblings, and cousins. He's drawn us into a new circle of family. And we are made part of the family of God, not only in the life to come, but in this life too. And it's through God's family, through the church, that Jesus is currently driving out loneliness. In the words of Wesley Hill, he says, The New Testament views the church, rather than marriage, as the primary place where human love is best expressed and experienced. In the Old Testament, marriage was viewed as the solution to loneliness, as Genesis 2 shows us. Now, however, in the New, the answer to loneliness is not marriage, but rather the new creational community that God is calling into being in Christ, the church marked by mutual love as it is led by the Spirit of Christ. In other words, if you are lonely, give yourself to the church. If you are lonely, give yourself to the church. God calls us into a family. Second gospel truth, all our longings will be satisfied in Jesus. All our longings will be satisfied in Jesus. All our longings for intimacy and belonging will be satisfied forever in Jesus. In his confessions, St. Augustine prays to God. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Maybe the reason we are so lonely is because we're trying to fill this God-shaped vacuum with substitutes. Only Jesus can satisfy your deepest longings. Not friends, not marriage, not children, not recognition, not wealth or achievement. Only Jesus can satisfy your deepest longings. And if you are in Jesus, rest assured, he will. He will. I was uh, looking through my journals the other day, and I came across this note. It said, Peter Kreeft describes death as a kind of birth. It's like this. When we were in our mother's womb, we could not possibly imagine what life would be like on the other side. Though we saw some shades of light, we could not imagine witnessing a sunset or a waterfall. Though we heard muffled noises, we could imagine nothing like Mahler or Tchaikovsky. We experienced only a semblance of reality. We couldn't possibly imagine why we had hands or feet, because we couldn't possibly imagine sidewalks or finger painting. So we had longings and desires that went unfulfilled, unsatisfied, but were met once life began outside the womb. One day, our mother's contractions felt like our world was ending, but in reality, it was just beginning. What if all our desires for intimacy and belonging, painfully unmet in this life, are simply preparing us for when they will be met in in eternity? What if God allows us to experience pain now so that in the end we see that Jesus alone is more satisfying than all else? When Jesus appears and death gives way to life, Jesus will be our joy. 
when Satan's head is crushed and death and loneliness with it, Jesus will be our joy. When together with all creation, we eternally behold the beauty and glory of the triune God, Jesus will be our joy. All our longings will be satisfied in Jesus. Third gospel truth is if that's not enough, Jesus understands our pain. Jesus understands our pain. Like David, we can only look forward to our deliverance. We still bear the pain of loneliness day by day, but Jesus understands our pain. Jesus understands our pain when we reel from rejection. Jesus understands our pain when we feel like failures. Jesus understands our pain when it seems there's no one around. Jesus understands our pain when we feel abandoned by God. But there's still joy. There is healing in his arms. And so let me close with a hymn. No one understands like Jesus. He's a friend beyond compare. Meet him at the throne of mercy. He is waiting for you there. No one understands like Jesus when the days are dark and grim. No one is so near, so dear as Jesus. Cast your every care on him. No one understands like Jesus every woe he sees and feels. Tenderly he whispers comfort and the broken heart he heals. No one understands like Jesus when the foes of life assail. You should never be discouraged. Jesus cares and will not fail. No one understands like Jesus when you falter on the way. Though you fail him, sadly fail him. He will pardon you today. No one understands like Jesus when the days are dark and grim. No one is so near, so dear as Jesus. Cast your every care on him. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you our struggle to understand this life and in view of all the promises you've given to us. Father, we, we ask that um, in the midst of our suffering that you would help us, help us to view it as God-ordained, as as situations and, and pain that will only increase our joy. Lord, may we see suffering and loneliness as a summons to greater intimacy with you. Father, I pray that you would help us to press into the truth that you love us with an unfailing love, and you will never desert us. Father, help us to see that love through community here in this church. And I pray that you would help us even now in, this ne- in these next moments to praise you for the life you've given to us in your son. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.